I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. I'm not going to read it because it's a long one. We'll just crawl through it together. And before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for testimonies like the one we've heard. And all of us has a story. In the midst of this, Lord, you you ask us to be a shining light. And so as we walk through this book of Acts, we thank you for the work you're doing in us and pray today, Lord, would be uh, instrumental also for us to move ahead for you. So we give you this time and we give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was... 9.59 a.m. Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, when United Airlines Flight 175 hit the South Tower of the World Trade Center in New York. The first of four coordinated terrorist attacks by Islamic terrorists against the United States. Those four attacks killed 2,000 977 people, injured over 25,000 others, and caused $10 billion in infrastructure and property damage, and as well launched an entire war on terror, which has had a dramatic effect on all of us even here. Now, almost everyone remembers where they were when they heard about the attack. And most of us remember the unity that occurred in North America and between nations during that time, after that terrible day. But it didn't take long for the people in North America to start pointing fingers. It didn't take long for the nations to go back into their posturing and their positions of the past. And the unity that was brought forth through terror unraveled because we forgot who was our enemy. Amen? Sadly, the very same thing can happen in the church. As we as sheep can so easily begin to point fingers at other sheep, and we can easily become critical of our shepherds, all the while forgetting that we have a common enemy outside the walls of this church. Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. So, brothers and sisters, let's never forget who our enemy is. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace, until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now Paul also in 1 Corinthians 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. These verses in God's words, tell us as followers of Jesus in the church that there is a bond of unity with us that is like a body. 
yet there's room for variety and it needs actually variety. But the devil loves to disrupt unity. Two cats tied together by their tails, thrown over a clothesline, may be united, but there's not <laughs> unity. American writer and humorist Mark Twain used to say he put a dog and a cat in a cage together as an experiment to see if they would get along. And he said they did, so then he put a bird, a pig, and a goat. And they too, after a few adjustments, got along. Then he put a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Methodist, and soon there was nothing left in the cage. The German philosopher um, Arthur Schopenhauer compared the human race to a bunch of porcupines huddled together on a cold night in the winter. He said, the, clo the colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth. But the closer we get to one another, the more we begin to prick each other with our quills. And in the lonely night of Earth's winter, eventually we will drift apart and wander out, wander out into the freezing cold by ourselves. That also could be said about the church. But Jesus gives, gives us an alternative. He said we are to forgive each other every time we poke one another. Now by this time, this should not surprise us. Back in Acts 13, God's word taught us that when the church does focus on its main business, it will experience conflict and opposition, both from without and from within. Jesus promised that would happen. In Matthew 10:34. he said, Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. All throughout our walk to the book of Acts, we have seen that every time we take a stand for Christ, every time we share the gospel of Christ, we will encounter opposition and we will experience conflict, both from without and always from within. The gospel is the good news, but it's the good news that divides. Again, both in the world, but sadly also in the church. Evidence is that in the Bible is that the majority of letters written in the New Testament are there that were sent to churches because they were going through conflict in their in division. But the truth is, most of the sinful conflicts and shameful divisions that happen in Christians and with Christians is pretty much petty issues rather than essential truths. And while we should avoid such selfish squabbling, our text today tells us that there is one issue we must never be divided about, and that is when it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? <laughs> the progress of the gospel is often hindered by people with closed minds who stand in front of an open door and that blocks the way for those who want to come in. Followers of Jesus Christ must be diligent to maintain gospel unity in the church. As we step into Acts 15, this morning we find ourselves facing one of the most hotly contested theological debates that was happening in the early church, which was, what is the nature of the gospel? Or more specifically, 
is salvation through Jesus Christ, the one who came to die on a cross in our place for the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven and redeemed and restored back to God when we surrender our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Is that based on grace alone or do we need to do anything else to be saved? We saw elements of this debate uh, as we've been going through Acts. And the first question was about the relationship about the gospel. And especially, how did the relation with the gospel work with the Jews and the Gentiles? It was only partially answered in Acts 8 when Philip began to preach uh, to the Samaritans. And Peter and John also came in and preached to the Samaritans, and there they received the Holy Spirit. And the wall of division that separated the Gentiles from the Jews was, was knocked down from the gospel there, but the Samaritans were a mixture of not only Gentiles, but also Jews. And so most of them followed Jewish practices. The next step is recorded in Acts 10, when Peter was preaching the gospel to Cornelius and those with him. The Gentiles believed and received the Holy Spirit. And when Peter returned to Jerusalem, the issue was discussed. And it was conceded by those who opposed that God had granted the Gentiles also repentance for life. This was a huge step, but the issue of Gentile conversions was not resolved because Cornelius was a Gentile, but he was always also practicing Jewish practices. So the question we face today is, what are Gentiles, non-Jews like us, who have no connection to Jews, how, how does the gospel work for us? The question was critical, we see, in this first missionary journey that Paul and uh, Barnabas faced. Nevertheless, there was a, a large number of Gentiles that came to faith, we saw in the last few weeks, who had nothing to do with the Jews. We ended last week at the end of Acts 14, where we read that Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, and we read that when they arrived and gathered to the church, they declared that all God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. In Acts 15, our first verse says this, but... Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So in these words, we read that as, as the good news of all the Gentile conversions reached Jerusalem, there's a, there's a negative reaction by some Jewish Christians who were connected to the Pharisees. And in their eyes... Uh, the conversion of Gentiles to Christianity was allowed as long as it was known that it was part of the Jewish uh, religion. But outright conversion of Gentiles who did not have Jewish traditions was not accepted. These Jewish Christians were, came out of the Pharisees. They would have considered this kind of Christianity without a connection to the Jews as a new religion. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is a, a, a message that was very different from what Paul and Barnabas 
have been preaching over these past chapters. Uh, the people who are challenging Paul and Barnabas were not authorized by the church to go to Antioch and to say these things, but they did it anyways. They were believers in Jesus, but they also believed we had to fulfill the law of Moses to be saved too. That's why they were teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And while we kind of know today that that's a heresy for us here in, in Christianity, this issue was not clear in those days, very not clear. Uh, most were ignorant of the ways of teachings of Jesus, but they knew a lot about Jewish tradition. Reading on, chapter, verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared that all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. So here we read that while Paul and Barnabas put up this great fight against this false teaching, they, they could not resolve the issue. So the church in Antioch decided the best way to do it would be to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, where there, who the people were that were causing the arguments, they came from there, and they also could get, have the assistance of the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church. Very wise decision. It's not a local church problem. It's a Christianity problem. So uh, the early apostles took care of it this way. What is this nature of salvation for the Gentiles, for everyone, in, including us? This was, the, uh, this was the question still then. Paul and Barnabas, we read, traveled down to Jerusalem. And while going through Phoenicia and Samaria, they shared with the churches with all the things that are doing uh, in the gospel with the Gentiles. And it says it brought great joy to those churches. But then they come to Jerusalem and tell the same stories, and that wasn't responded to very well. Uh, while many had maybe rejoicing what, what they were hearing, the opposition again began to be critical. Their concern was that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised to keep the law of Moses. Now, it's significant to note here that these men didn't specifically demand circumcision for salvation, is what he said. He says in verse 1. This is a change. This is a change. But rather now it required them to, in order to keep the law of Moses. What we see here is that their the demand, they, they have missed what the cause is in the way that uh, the Jewish faith talked about holiness. The holiness in the Jewish faith, you have to work for it. This is an outward, outward um, working out. But for us as Christians, this is an inward thing that happens to us in our hearts that is sparked by the Holy Spirit and filled by the risen Christ. They were yet still in the old covenant, and we are in the new. And in addition, they twisted it with their own traditions. 
So the issue here is not circumcision, but it's about the law and about traditions again. So, starting at verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The apostles and the elders, along with Barnabas and Paul and the believers of the party, the Pharisees, sit down to discuss this all. And our text says there was much debate the original word here in the Greek, debate, is not about arguing. It's about searching out a question of controversy. At the end of the discussion, Peter gets up and his conclusion is that uh, since the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just as they had, uh, God does not qualify, or excuse me, disqualify the Gentiles even though they haven't fulfilled the Mosaic law. And they should not have a burden put on them as Gentiles as they themselves, the Jews, could not bear. And that salvation is faith and grace in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's word tells us that we are not saved by anything we do. Amen? It's all about what God did. Salvation by keeping the law is impossible. The purpose of the law was never to save sinners, but to show sinners their de desperate need for grace. In Ephesians 2, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The gospel is the good news, but it's also the good news that divides both in the world and in the church. And the difference is grace. Therefore, unity in the church is wrong when it compromises the truth that salvation is by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. We must be diligent, brothers and sisters, to maintain gospel unity. It's being divided and try, uh, revised all the time. Going to verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders had been done among them in the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will return to the tent of David that has fallen. 
I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So in these words, we read the force of Peter's argument in verses 7 through 11, silence everybody, especially those who are disagreeing. Then Paul and Barnabas begin to share what God had worked through them as they preached to the, the gospel to the Gentiles, confirming that message with, with signs and wonders and miracles. And then Paul could have launched off at that moment uh, into a defense of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Romans 3 and 4. But what, this wasn't about him at this point. So for him, the emphasis was what God had done through them so that all their opponents might know that the gospel is of all of God's doing in the Gentiles. And after Paul and Barnabas finished speaking, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who later wrote the epistle of James, he takes the floor. And James first calls attention to Peter's speech concerning God's work in Cornelius. He then specifically points out the prophecy in Amos 9, verses 11 and 12, which declared God's promise of a future restoration of the nation of Israel, which also included the hope and restoration for the Gentiles. Way back when Amos the prophet prophesied, he already promised that we, we would be in the glory of the kingdom with God. In pointing this out, James was reminding them at the Jerusalem Council that the Old Testament prophecies did not make any additional demands of the Gentiles. James reasoned since Peter had shown that the Gentiles had been saved by grace alone, and since Amos shows Gentiles will not be required to be uh, Jews first, then Jewish, then Gentiles should be accepted as is. James then gives his personal judgment that the Gentiles should not be troubled by having any Jewish laws imposed on them and that they should be careful in their conduct and so they would not offend Jews who are still faithful to Moses. And then James tells us that they can do so by keeping some of the Jewish practices, by abstaining from things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled, and from what's blood. James' conclusion here was that the Gentile believers were to show respect for the Jewish faith, even though they were not required to follow that faith. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day of much spiritual and moral compromise, even among evangelical Christians. For that reason, many of us abhor any thought of 
compromise. But often, those of us who are strong in our convictions do so when it comes to trivial issues. Spiritual maturity requires discernment so that we might stand firm when it comes to essential truth. But on matters not essential to the faith, where humble men and women differ, we must elevate our love over our rights. Amen? Concession is, is right when it does not compromise essential truth. And it's done out of love in trying to avoid offend, offending other people. But concession is always wrong when it compromises the, the essentials of the gospel unity of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have to be careful about what we're going to be convicted of and the things that we're going to stand for. And too often we stand for the lower things. Let's stand for the big ones, amen? Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, they went off and they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And so as, as imagine, you can imagine that uh, the, when the letter was written and, written and read in Antioch, the people did rejoice with the great encouragement. Their salvation now would no longer be questioned. They would no longer be forced to keep the law and they weren't restricted by the law. But requested, if asked, to encourage harmony in the church by compromising on the small things. After some time, Judas and Silas and whoever else was with them departed in peace, and they returned to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas, we read, remained in Antioch, and they taught the word and they preached the gospel. And at that point, 
unity has been restored in the church. Then we look at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed the way to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Here again we, send the, we see the principle of God that the gospel is good news, but that good news also can divide, both in the world and in the church. The truth is, the greatest common sin of division in the church is our relentless focus on ourselves. Instead of denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, following Jesus, living out the greatest commandment to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love each other and to love others. We see this in this conflict with these two great leaders of the early church. Both had shown great spiritual maturity in the past. They had they'd worked together for a number of years. Both had shown humility and deference to each other. Both were passionate about the issue that ultimately caused the conflict. Now Luke doesn't lay down any blame uh, on either Barnabas or Paul. Both were guilty in a sense in the way that they responded in an ungodly manner. And we know that because the phrase sharp disagreement in the Greek means to, be, means to provoke and be contentious. So they're both doing these things. Both Barnabas and Paul wanted to return to the cities they had visited on their first journey and encourage the churches. And on that point, they agreed. But the dispute was over John Mark, Barnabas's cousin. Paul did not want him to come because he deserted them, if you remember, in Acts chapter 13. And while Scripture doesn't say what that reason was, Paul viewed it as a very serious matter, but Barnabas did not. The difference is, at least in part, is their personalities. Barnabas saw potential in John Mark and wanted to give him another chance and take him along. Paul saw John Mark's previous actions as a failure, which could compromise and hinder the planned mission they were going on. So who was right? Scripture doesn't give us a clue, I would guess if, if it's the norm, like for us, probably both of them were partly right and partly wrong. Amen? Paul had a valid reason to be concerned, but Barnabas also had some insight in the potential of, of John Mark, which later on does come up in his life. Um, the truth is, is the conflict itself was really not the issue. The fact that two normally godly men were in such conflict shows that kind of conflict is common to all of us. I won't say amen for that. So. 
you won't say anything anyways. Here we also see that spiritual maturity does not erase personality differences. Spiritual maturity does not erase personality differences. Such differences, if we're not careful, can lead to clashes that cause us to sin. Christian unity does not require that we have to work closely together, but it does call us to share our lives and our hearts with each other and an overabundance also of forgiveness. The Bible recognizes two kinds of unity. Back in Ephesians 4, where I started, Ephesians 4, 3, Paul mentions the unity of the Spirit, which he says we must be diligent to preserve. This unity implies a spiritual fact based on the shared life we have in Jesus Christ. What that means is if a person is, is born again into the body of Christ, we are members of one another, family members, born into this family. And we must be careful not to ever damage that unity. This is a creation of God. Then in verse 13, Paul mentions the unity of faith, which he says we are to attain as we mature in Christ together. This is a a oneness that we share uh, in growing in our lives, the fellowship that deepens us as we mutually grow and understand and love the great truths and the power of God together. We should never let personality clashes or differences of opinion to cause us to quit serving the Lord. The work of Christ, brothers and sisters, is greater than any one of us here. And we should never stop serving when conflict comes into our lives. Neither Paul nor Barnabas let this stop them from serving Jesus. They didn't leave the church. Instead of one missionary team, now they had two. We also don't read that Paul was traveling throughout Syria and Syria telling all the churches how wrong Barnabas was. There's no indication that he trashed his name when he left. There's no indication that Paul or Barnabas became rivals. They did not compete against each other. Both men were committed to know Jesus Christ in a deep way and proclaim the gospel to every person. Even every time after Paul Paul mentions Barnabas or Mark, he does so in a very kind and a very supportive way. That being said, there are times there are differences of viewpoint which do require separation. The will of God was that Barnabas should take Mark to Cyprus because Cyprus was his birthplace and he wanted to visit there and see what happens. And it was the will of God for Paul to take Silas and go to Syria because the churches there needed his ministry. But it was not the will of God that they should have sharp contention between each other. Their quarreling was not right before God. It was the will of God that they separate because it's not the will of God that they quarrel. There are times when the Spirit of God does lead Christians to go separate ways. All of us have been to different churches. I've served different churches. We don't live in any one particular place. We are nomads, in a sense, looking for our new families quite often. 
There are times when the Spirit does lead that way. But when we do that, we should always do it with joy and with an agreeable understanding of the Spirit of who we are and what we're doing. And also being able to express our viewpoints without any kind of conflict. God sovereignly used this sharper disagreement between Barnabas and Paul for his own purposes. And that split that happened ultimately was not permanent. They did reconcile with one another and they did work with each other again. We can trust our Lord Jesus will do that too for us when we humbly seek the unity of spirit and the unity of faith together as we battle against the evil one who seeks to steal, to kill, and destroy our unity in the gospel. Followers of Jesus must be diligent in maintaining gospel unity and continue to humbly serve our Lord and Jesus, regardless of our personality differences. The Puritan Thomas Brooks once said, Discord and division become no Christian. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder, but for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous, he says. Some years ago, the superstar tenors Jose Carreras, Pasido Domingo, and Luciano Pavarotti, all these Italian names, they performed together in, in a large opera house in Los Angeles, California. A reporter tried to press the issue of the competitiveness that these three men might have had. And, and Domingo said, you have to put all of your concentration into opening your heart to the music. And so you can't be rivals when you're making music together. This is also true for the church. Unity in the church is wrong when it compromises the truth of salvation is by God's grace, alone, through faith, alone, in Christ, alone. Concession is always wrong when it compromises the, compromises the essentials of the gospel unity of salvation by God's grace. Followers of Jesus in the church must be diligent in maintaining gospel unity and continually to humbly serve no matter what happens. And we must be diligent in this church, in all churches need to be. And we need to not forget who our enemy is, amen? For it is by grace that we've been saved, through faith in Jesus Christ. And none of us has done anything to get that. This is a gift from God. It's not a result of anything we've done. None of us here can boast. We're all God's workmanship. We were created in Jesus Christ to share the gospel. That's the work we are to do. God has prepared us for this. And so I say, let's go to work. Let's get to work, amen? Father, we, we bless you for your word. Lord, the, the fact that we're saved should just stun us anyways. Uh, some of us have forgotten to be stunned. Help us, Lord, as we start this journey that we've started these, next, these last few months as you are calling us to this 
to this light of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community. And in the midst of it all, Lord, we know we're going to have our oppositions both in our hearts and in our church and in our families and in our businesses and um, even in our own minds at times. But, Lord, there's one thing that doesn't change, and that's you. So help us, Lord, to be the people you want us to be and to know, Lord, that there needs to be a unity in this. This is not about being united. It's about being one for you. So in the days ahead, may we rejoice. We are Gentiles, and now we're part of the the bigger picture of the family that will live forever in glory. We bless you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.